0: Hi, Michael Wright here. This episode contains a bit of strong language. It also has some authentic earthquake sounds and graphic descriptions of rescue.
1: Canterbury Television was born in 1991. It was the first regional station to broadcast in New Zealand.
0: Good evening, I'm Grant Mangan. Ever
1: wondered why someone isn't doing something... Back then, TV in New Zealand had been around for 30 years... But for most of that time, it had been run, quite literally, as a government department. We're standing by now for the network news. Auckland
2: is to get the country's first hovercraft. It's an SRN-6 which has been ordered for crash...
0: Fire it started back in the early 60s as NZBS, then became NZBC. TVNZ came along in the 80s. We had two stations by then. But the entire network was run by the government. Every night, after half an hour of national news, every region cut to its own local bulletin. In Canterbury,
1: we had the mainland touch.
0: And in Southland, we had the South Tonight. All of this finally changed in 1989, when television in New Zealand was deregulated. The regional services were out. There was just one national news bulletin for the whole country. And, crucially, private operators got a look in.
1: So, local stations like CTV started popping up. They were independent, energetic, and parochial. Cantabrians were proud of theirs. Oh yes, it's Friday, again. I just love the fact that there's one every week. It's so
3: regular, you can count on it. Welcome to the show.
1: Straight out of training school, I worked at CTV in the late 90s, producing a music TV show of pop hits. Think Mariah Carey, Sugar Ray, and Bewitched. Back then, CTV was a nutty place, We made lots of mistakes on air, but we had a good time doing it. Although it was run on the smell of an oily rag, places like this were important in giving people like me opportunities to learn lots of different skills. By the 2000s, things had changed. Bit sleeker, bit more modern. But the formula was the same, a lot of shopping shows.
3: Welcome to Good Living. It is Thursday with a 30-year-old, Matty. How does it feel, Matty?
2: Oh, do we have
3: to... Is it all right, though? Are you Are coping all right with the big 3-0? Well, uh,
2: the
0: walking stick helps a
3: lot. It does, actually. Yeah.
0: Matty was um, a fun person. This is David Beaumont. That voice you heard just before David was his son, Matty. Matty was a programmer at CTV, but he'd had just about every job going at the station. Plenty of them on air.
4: That's a dinosaur in a blonde wig. <laughs> or miley
2: Oh, Maddie.
0: Maddy died in the CTV building collapse, along with 15 of his Canterbury television colleagues. I've spoken to David several times in the years since. He's always been happy to talk across all the details of the story, but 10 years on, he still trembles when he talks about his son. He lived for CTV. A um, marvellous sense of humor. He was never um, brilliant at school, but... um i always made the comment and I, I made it at the memorial service that he went to charm school yes
3: so yeah. yeah and the pacemaker as well yeah so. talked
0: to the boss upstairs apparently
2: they're gonna get wheelchair
0: appeared on television quite a few times he did uh, he, he used to do the movie
4: reviews for the uh, CTV, and um he never ever said there was a bad film he also did a motor review and if anybody knew less about cars, it was Matt. Soviet Union only produced 3,000 of the luxury limo, the Chica.
0: Yeah, I to... remember that I stopped the broadcast because he's mispronounced the names of cars. ...of the
4: luxury limo, the Chica. F**k. sorry, I'm so sorry.
0: The car's called a Chica. He got there eventually. Maddie started working at CTV in 1997. Back then, the studio was in a different part of town, Manchester Street, if you know Christchurch. CTV didn't actually move into what was the CTV building until 2000, after which the building just inherited the name of its anchor tenant.
1: CTV only worked out of the bottom two floors. By 2011, most of the people in the building were from other companies. There was an English language school called King's Education, a counselling service, relationship services, and a medical practice called The Clinic. A few other tenants had come and gone over the years as well.
0: In fact, for the first three years of its life, the CTV building sat empty. Construction finished in 1988, just after the New Zealand share market crashed. The company that owned the building then went broke and the receivers had a hard time finding a buyer. Finally, in 1990, the Canterbury Regional Council, now known as Environment Canterbury, emerged as a white knight. It was after new premises and liked the look of the building at 249 Madras Street. It got an engineer to inspect it first.
1: That engineer did not like what he found. Remember in our last episode how Kendall Lamont, who was on the top floor when the earthquake hit, described how the building collapsed? I remember seeing the floor separate from the walls. The floor separating from the walls. Back in 1990, that's exactly what the engineer was worried about.
2: I identified that there appeared to be an area of non-compliance with the code of the day with respect to the tying of the floors to the shear walls.
1: This is that engineer reading from a statement at a later inquiry into the CTV collapse.
2: The result of this would be that in the event of an earthquake, the building would effectively separate from the shear <coughs> walls well before the shear walls themselves...
1: reached. That's side. engineering speak for saying that in an earthquake, the CTV building would fall over.
0: I'm Margaret Gordon. And I'm Michael Wright. On February the 22nd, 2011, a devastating earthquake shook the city of Christchurch, killing 185 people. Two-thirds of those people were in one building, a building that should never have been built. From stuff, this is Collapse.
5: She went from I'm going to die to I'm going to live.
6: Maybe if there was even a small fire, I could die by bond.
4: We'd already had this plan. If this doesn't work, we're going to have to cut our foot off.
0: When the February earthquake hit, there were 20 people in the clinic medical practice on the fifth floor of the CTV building. Among them were Marion Hilbers, a receptionist, and Torpy Emery, who was a patient.
1: At 12.51pm, Torpy was in the waiting area on the east side of the building. Remember from our last episode, that was the worst side. Rescuers had a hard time finding ways
0: into the rubble. Marion was across the hall in the staff room on her lunch break. Five hours after the quake, a receptionist from the clinic named Pip Lee was pulled alive from the rubble. She was a colleague of Marion Hilbers, and she'd seen Torpy Emery walking into the waiting room minutes before the quake. When Pip got out, she told her rescuers there was one more person alive inside.
1: Outside, across the street, looking at what was left of the CTV building, was Marion's brother, Paul Berry. He was a security guard. The CTV building was on his beat, and he knew it well. But he had no idea until that day that his sister's employer had recently moved into the building. All he could do was wait and hope.
2: You're running at 100 miles an hour. You're pff, living on hope and praying, I suppose, but uh, just hoping that, that that's, like overseas, they're going to start pulling people
0: out. Also keeping vigil was Tanya Emery, Toppy's mum. The clinic was her doctor's and she'd taken her son into reception just minutes before the quake. She'd watched the building pancake with him inside and now she was at the cordon that police had set up around the site at Latimer Square, about 100 metres away, walking around and around.
7: Calling out to my son because I thought maybe someone grabbed him and someone's attending to him but he was nowhere to be found. And then they started bringing out bodies. And the first body that came out, I was looking at their feet, their shoes, and hoping that it wasn't my son that they were bringing out.
0: But then, after five and a half hours of waiting...
7: So his sister was standing next to me, he. she goes, Mum, look, there's Topi. And then whatever I had in my hands and what was ever around me, I just threw really everything. i dropped it all and just ran to my son.
3: Hi, Wendy. Look, this is the most amazing story of the afternoon. We have been keeping a vigil with Topi's mother, Tanya, outside this building
0: here that he- this is TVNZ, minutes after Toppy Emery was pulled from the rubble. Toppy is all at sea in this interview, staring into the distance or looking straight at the ground. Tanya is by his side, clinging to his arm.
3: So, Toppy, just describe to us what it was like in there. Um. You said you could hear people calling out.
8: Yeah, I could hear people calling out, you know, um, you know.
3: So who, what were they saying in there, the other people that were trapped?
8: Just like help, stuff like that. So I was banging on the, um, on the middle, yep. yelling out I'd help because my voice was better than theirs. Yep. And um, luckily one of them got out
3: before me. You told me that you almost died three
8: times in there. Kia ora, my name is Topi Emery, real name Ko Topi Marma. I was trapped in CTV building for five
0: hours. When I interviewed Topi in mid 2020, he said he doesn't remember the five seconds of the earthquake itself. He remembers being in the waiting room, then being in a dark hole. He calls it his little cave. I just woke up screaming. As soon as I heard that, I was like, hey,
8: what's going on here? Then I looked around, I was like, where the fuck am I? There's no one around me, there's no bodies, there's nothing. It's just me.
0: He could move around in the space he was in, but there was a huge hole in the middle, disappearing down into the black.
8: Then my next thought was, how do I get out of here? So I started calling towards the exit sign because I could see it. It's like Alice in Wonderland. It's going big, big, small, small, small. Next minute, the exit sign's right in front of my face. I just remember seeing, just cursing and then just
0: shuffling backwards. Toppy was pretty lucky. He wasn't badly injured and he wasn't pinned down. But then came the fire and the smoke.
8: Yeah, I didn't really process that it was actually something that could fill a room up and kill you. But then the smoke changed from black to white. As soon as that stuff come creeping in, that's when the eyes started watering, the nose, mouth, and that, that got really hard to breathe. I remember thinking to myself, fuck, I'm gonna fucking
0: die right now. In desperation, Toppy grabbed a handful of exposed wires either side of him for balance.
8: I hold on to these electrical wires, wrapped them around my hands, I hope I don't fall down this hole right here, because every time I'd shake, I'd go like that.
0: Boom. When the smoke became too much, he stuck his head down into the hole for a breath of fresh air. That worked for a while. When the smoke got thicker, he picked up a piece of broken plasterboard and snapped it in half to make two fans.
8: And then I prayed to my God, Jehovah, like I asked him to save my life, and boom. (coughs) Filling the flick of my fingers, there's no smoke, there's no screaming, and that's... That's probably
0: the time when um, I heard Philippa. Philippa was Pip Lee, the receptionist from the clinic who was pulled out before Toppy and told rescuers where he was. Pip has largely stayed out of the limelight since the earthquake. I knocked on her door last year to ask her about talking for this podcast. She was really good about it, let me in, heard me out, but she declined the interview. She's moved on. But she did tell me that she remembered Toppy, and Toppy remembers her.
8: She asked who I was, and I said I was the one standing with the lady that was paying 40 bucks, and then I went to sit down. So she goes to me, um, can I tell you something? Oh, yeah. And she goes, I thought you were pretty cute.
3: So you came out, you're covered in in scratches and bruises and burns and all wet. How are you feeling?
8: Alive. But, um, the the thing is, while I'm on TV, is to, um, thank all those people that are behind me right now, as you can see, all the rescuers, you know, yep. that's the reason why I'm out. All good, you
3: So what are your plans now, Topi?
8: Live life to the fullest.
1: <laughs> Paul Berry, Marion Hilber's brother, also gave an interview at the CTV site. We played some of it in the last episode.
4: And as you stand here tonight, what's going through your mind? Yeah, a bit of sadness.
2: While they were interviewing me, I had a real cold tingle on me. Um, a body came out, and I actually watched that in the video as it go past. Yeah, no, lovely lady, lovely lady. Loves her kids. Um, it was like 10 minutes after the, the interview finished that police commander came up and said, we've got a body. And she has Marianne's name badge. Asked me to describe her. Yeah, that sounds like her. I said, um, oh well, at least I know now. And he said, well, look, oh, there might be another Marion in the building. And I went, no, no, she's gone. And I walked away and I had a good cry on the side of the road for about half an hour and then left sight.
1: It wasn't an official confirmation of death. Some families had to wait months for that but Paul knew they'd found his sister's body. He told the rest of the family, including Marion's sons, later that day. Her oldest son, Josh, already knew. He'd been working opposite the CTV building and saw it collapse. You heard him in episode one. He clambered over the rubble, felt an urge to get down, and then walked around in a daze. He tried ringing his mum over and over again. Eventually, Josh hitched a ride home. A mate of a mate took him to see his brother, Sam.
4: I grabbed that bottle and I just drank the whole way. And so when I got there, my, <clears throat> my brother was already there.
7: And uh, I walked up to him and gave him a big hug and, and, and told him that she was gone.
1: Josh hadn't seen his mum's body. At this point, it was still daylight, a few hours after the quake. But he just knew.
4: It was, um, based on my feeling at the time. and just, I don't know. It just, something told me that it was, that it was, that she was gone. Like it was, Hmm. <laughs>
1: Paul and Josh were two different men. You just heard them give two disparate accounts of the day Marion died. The stoic sibling, the passionate son. And their lives went in different directions after that. Paul stayed on the straight and narrow, Josh didn't. Both of them had been at CTV, stood up close, and looked at the smouldering rubble where Marion's body lay. And they knew intimately the horror of what happened. Having heard both of them talk about it at length, it's hard to tell if they had any control over what came next for them. The only thing they definitely did not have control over was Marion. Life was something that now happened without her.
2: We're all trying to undo what was done to us on that night, where we were left helpless. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't help. I said, sorry, sister, couldn't help.
1: Marian Hilbers had hated working in the CTV building. She told her family the whole place shook every time a bus or a truck drove past. The clinic had only been in the building a couple of months, but she'd already applied for a receptionist position at a different practice. The day after she died, that practice rang her home. She'd got the job.
5: I'll come stand here.
1: Okay.
5: You all right there? um... Yeah. here we go. David, could you tell me what happened?
4: I was on the third floor of the CTV building in King's Education when the earthquake hit. I was just about to get in the elevator and the whole building shook violently and collapsed around me.
0: That's David Horsley being interviewed a few hours after the earthquake. Horsley was working as an English language teacher at King's Education on the fourth floor, one below the clinic. He's draped in a blanket, there's blood spattered on his face... And he has a bandage wrapped around his head, chin to forehead, like a cartoon character with a toothache. And you, you had a party of 22 students there at the time. In total, 22 students, yes. What's happened to them? We know that some of them have
4: have got out and um, have been taken to various hospitals around Christchurch, but I can only account for about half of them at the moment.
0: And the other half? We don't
1: know. Horsley much. is a Kiwi, but he lives in Toyama, a small city on the west coast of Japan. He works at the Toyama College of Foreign Languages, and he had escorted those 22 people all the way to Christchurch for an English language course at King's Education. February 22nd was the second day of classes. One of the students was 19-year-old Yukio Minami.
6: I just wanted to go to New Zealand, and and like, yeah, learning learning English.
1: (laughs) This is Yukio talking from his home in Tokyo. As you can hear, He's a bit of a character. And it's probably fair to say that, 10 years ago, he was more interested in traveling than studying.
6: So if I could skip the school, I just wanted to skip the school and maybe (laughs) enjoy touring New Zealand.
1: Yukio's big plan was to learn English, then go to college in the United States. He'd always loved the US.
6: When I was a kid, the American drama, Furu House, was (laughs) on the TV. (laughs) When I watched Full House, I, I really liked the culture in America. The, the, their family loves, um, I don't know, the big popcorns, something like that.
1: For now, Yukio had to settle for Christchurch rather than a TV version of San Francisco. He and his classmates arrived on February 19th, a Saturday. They met their host families and got ready for school on Monday.
0: Despite all being in the same class, not everyone knew each other. Yukio had at least one friend. He and Kento Akuda were buddies back in Toyama. Also on the trip was Tomoko Kiyu, 43 years old and the only other teacher in the group, 19 year old Narika Masutani, and 20 year old Kyoko Kawahata. Kyoko's father, Kuniaki Kawahata, was the deputy principal of the Toyama school. He liked King's education and urged his daughter to join the New Zealand trip. When she decided to go, he took her to the train station himself. Kawahata later said in a TV interview that Kyoko was often cold towards him. But that day on the platform, she looked back at him as she left and smiled.
6: And I spoke to the daughter from TCFL teacher Kawabata
0: Sensei. That's Yukio again. Kyoko Kawahata was one of his classmates that he didn't know so well. So we made a bit of an effort when they got to New Zealand.
6: I talked with uh Aswell and some of my classmates. We became the friend in the school uh, for just one day though.
0: On the morning of Tuesday, February 22nd, the Toyama students learned some grammar, played a Māori stick game, and sang songs with teacher Wally Tarakana on the guitar.
6: Oh no! The earthquake. Earthquake happened on my second day. Then after the class, the lunchtime. Me and other guy Tomoki, who has passed away. Tomoki somehow he couldn't shut down the computer, so he couldn't go to the cafeteria with me.
1: Instead, Yukio went with his buddy Kento Akuda.
6: I just took lunch with Kento. Then during we were eating lunch, just earthquake was happened. The classroom shook so I don't know, so strong. So I just couldn't move. So I just just smiled at Kento and I said, "Oh, this this is this is huge, isn't it?" And the next moment I was trapped in the building and uh, the surrounding was completely dark and I couldn't move.
1: Yukio woke to Kento calling his name. As you've heard, Yukio has good English, but when Mike asked him to describe where he was trapped, he wanted to do it in Japanese. The other voice you'll hear is our translator, Keiko
7: Kobayashi.
6: It was pitch dark
7: but he, I could tell Kento was near me. I could hear him and I could see he was using his cell phone and I could see his cell phone's flash. I was laying on my side. So I, even though I wanted to move, I couldn't move my body. I could only tilt my head a little bit. Yeah, just a couple centimeter. centimeters. I had my phone in my pocket, but I couldn't even reach it.
1: It didn't take long for news of the quake to get back to Japan. Yukio couldn't reach the phone in his pocket, but Kento could reach his. Kento called his brother in Japan and told him what had happened. His brother didn't believe him. Kento handed his phone to Tomoko Kiyu. She was the other teacher on the trip, and she'd been sitting near Kento and Yukio when the quake hit. Tomoko talked to Kento's brother. Then, like many trapped Toyama students, she called the school back in Japan.
4: It
0: originally went from his phone or her phone to Japan or the school or whatever. This is Paul Rodwell. He's a firefighter. He arrived at CTV a couple of hours after the quake and ended up on the west side of the site, where a lot of rescues were happening. Pretty soon after Paul arrived, the rescuers started getting information, fifth hand, sixth hand about people who were trapped.
4: He was calling the New Zealand embassy in Tokyo, he was calling the Japanese embassy in Wellington, he was then called the New Zealand police in Christchurch, who was calling us at the site. So even though he was 10 metres away, he was going around the world to get us a message.
0: This was about three o'clock in the afternoon. By now, the rescue was a bit more organised. There was some heavy equipment on site and plenty of emergency personnel. Remember, the west side was the best side for rescues there were lots of openings in the rubble that made it easier to find survivors. One gap looked particularly promising.
4: I found this void, which is was probably only about 400 mil square to get your body into. Even though I'm an officer and should have been out there commanding, I sort of dead keen to get inside there, so it just slips into the hole.
0: This hole would take Paul into what was left of the King's Education Cafeteria, where Yukio Kento their teacher Tomoko and 19 other people had been having lunch.
4: Think of everything that would normally be in an office, in a room of computers and of chairs and of tables, and then squash all that under a little void, a little bit bigger than under your bed. And then you put the people in there as well. So that's what it looked like.
0: The tunnel that Paul was in had been created by a big concrete beam that fell down before the floor above came down on top of it. That
4: beam. It's saved some students, and it's killed some students. And that's why people sitting beside each other, some didn't survive and some did.
1: We should say tunnel is being pretty generous. Paul and his colleagues had to make it as they went. Early on, whoever they came across had to be taken out, dead or alive. There was no other way to get to the people behind.
4: All these bodies are intertwined. I remember at one stage taking my gloves off, touching skin to see which ones were warm and which ones were cold, to how we could handle them. Even then, you couldn't help but have heavy equipment on people that were still alive and crawling over the top of people that were deceased, and that's just the way it was. Put yourself into these people's position. They got in pitch darkness for ages before we got there. Terrible aftershocks, got no language of the rescuers. Uh, You got poisonous smoke pouring into that void. You know, it's such a terrible, frightening thing. I mean, it's bad enough for us, but we could always get out. And they couldn't get out, of course. So, you know, just imagine the nightmare of that.
1: The only way out for the rescuers was the way they came in. Paul and his colleagues had a system. Hands on the ankles of the guy in front. Any time the guy at the very front, that was Paul, had hold of someone, everyone at the tunnel entrance pulled Rescues were the only time Paul left the tunnel, though. Through everything else, all the aftershocks, he stayed put. For one thing, it would take ages to shuffle all the way out, get the all clear, and then head back in. But that wasn't the only reason.
4: You get such a rapport with these people, and they're relying on you, holding your hand and everything else. You just didn't want to have it shake and just start taking off. Again, it's not just being brave, it was just being sensible and practical.
0: Yukio Minami had been sitting at the end of a long cafeteria table when the quake hit. As Paul and the others inched further into the rubble, he was just about the furthest one away. Tomoko Kiyu, their teacher, was nearby. The only person behind Yukio was Kento.
6: Kento was only one who was calm. He tried to cheer up other students. First of all, he was checking who was there. He called everyone's name and when he could hear the answer he said like oh gambaroze.
0: Gambarotze basically means cheer up kento had one more trick up his sleeve remember how the class had been singing songs that morning one of them was a backstreet boys song i want it that way kento had it on his phone
6: backstreet boys song T- tell me why you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Gamborotses and the Backstreet Boys on the phone only went so far. Yukio and Kento were trapped for a long time.
6: Kento was cheering up other people, but after five or four hours after the earthquake, he was kind of giving up. So he turned on the voice recorder on his phone and he tried to leave his will to his brother. (laughs) <laughs> so at that time, me and other girls...
0: The other girl is Tomoko Kiyu, the teacher.
6: Me and other girls said, stop together, to canto, because it was engi Engidemonai.
0: Keiko-san. Yukio's talking to Keiko, our translator here. He couldn't quite convert the phrase he just used into English. Engi loosely means a bad omen. Keiko described it as like you're giving up and going towards the light. Yukio knew just how his friend felt.
6: Oh, in my brain, I think I was, I was being negative a bit because I could smell the gas, gas leaked. So maybe if there was a, even a small fire, maybe I could die by bond. And if that happened, I, I, sh, I shall bite my tongue and I'm going to die before I was burned.
1: Yukio's referring here to a figurative act of suicide in Japanese culture. In this case, a person might avoid a dishonorable or grisly end by biting off their own tongue and instead bleeding to death.
6: Because the second earthquake could happen, I was just hoping. And I was thinking the worst thing. What was the worst thing could happen? Like Like 50% I might die. After I could hear the rescue, I think I'm going to be okay. Maybe 60% I will arrive. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Slowly the rescuers got closer. Rika Iwakura, rescued alive. Emi Murakami, deceased. Hiroko Sato, rescued alive. Yurika Uchihira, deceased. Kyoko Kawahata, who Yukio had just got to know, and whose father, the deputy principal, urged her to go on the trip died from crush and head injuries. She was 20 years old.
0: In 2012, Kuniaki Kawahata said in that TV interview that after he learned of his daughter's death, he sat in his car, alone, in the dark, shouting her name as loud as he could. And I said sorry, he told the interviewer, because I made this proposal. If I had not suggested she go to King's Education to begin with, it wouldn't have happened.
1: Finally, Paul Rodwell reached the person right in front of Yukio, 19-year-old Narika Masutani. She was in a bad way.
4: She was in the shape of a safety pin, if you like. Her head was between her ankles, and she'd been in that position for hours, absolutely hours. I couldn't imagine how pain it must have been. Trapped by the ankle, completely bent over, all this furniture and her chair was all wrapped all around her and squashed up around her.
1: Paul chipped away at the debris until Narika could unbuckle her body. It was slow work, and every time Paul asked for tools, Noreka, with her two days of English classes, picked up single words. Cutters. Sharp.
4: She was dead scared that we were going to amputate her foot. So she, she said, don't cut my foot, don't cut my foot. Said, no, 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 it's all right, we're just cutting the carpet. The doctor was here at this stage, because he says, no, no, you're okay." trying to reassure her. She grabbed me by the collar and looked me in the eye and said, I trust you. (laughs) I thought, oh, my God, he's a very trustworthy-looking doctor. Why would you say that? So the pressure was so much on. We'd already had this plan. If this doesn't work, we're going to have to cut her foot off.
1: After five hours trapped, Yukio was understandably impatient.
6: She was in a difficult position. The rescuer says, we might cut your leg. And the girl said, no, and because of that, it takes time to rescue her. So I was kind of a bit irritated <laughs> to her. Hey, just one leg, you just cut it and <laughs> we are rescued. I couldn't say, yeah, you can cut your leg, but I, I said, hurry up to the girl. Yeah.
1: Narika's foot was well and truly stuck. Paul and the doctor tried one last idea. It was either this or amputate. They sedated Narika and called for some webbing, like a strong, flat piece of rope, and squeezed it round the back of her foot.
4: So pass this the webbing down, get it round her foot, Start pulling on it and that, it's not working. So then the doctor and I, we thought, well, what more damage could we do? We both swung on it. Thank God it popped out. <laughs>
0: Norika was finally free. She was eased out of the tunnel and onto a stretcher. One of the stretcher bearers was Senior Constable Stuart Martindale.
5: There was about three or four of us around the whole any one time sort of waiting, and there were a couple that were alive but were very touch-and-go. That sort of became a very quick dash
0: down the rubble to get to the ambulance. Of all the people Martindale carried off the rubble that night, the one who stayed with him is Norika. He still remembers her face. It was covered in dust, except for her temples, where she'd been crying.
5: I just remember clearly holding the stretcher, walking down and looking down, and she grabbed my arm. And that's when you know, that she went from a thought of, I'm going to die, to a realisation, I'm going to live. You could almost see the exact moment that that occurred. I remember that because I was carrying the stretcher with her on it, and she was holding my arm, looking up at me saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, and it was like... A light bulb went on, she goes, I'm going to live. And I think that's a bit of an honour to see that, you know. It's not something you ever expect to see in your lifetime.
0: While Stuart Martindale was outside bringing people off the pile, Paul Rodwell was still inside the tunnel. Yukio was next, and after Narika, his rescue was pretty easy. His face was right up against a wall, but he wasn't actually pinned down. First, though, came the introductions. Remember, Yukio and his classmates had only had two days of English lessons.
6: I, I think the rescuers asked my name. When I asked them their names. And I said, Yukio. And he goes, no, my name's Yukio. They say, what? Tonight, it's Louis. And they say, OK, we'll call Rui. And he goes, OK, Louis. I, I think that was a conversation.
0: <laughs> the next part, Paul and his colleagues had down pat. Hands on ankles, pull.
4: I grabbed him and started pulling him out, and then jammed, he was jammed again. And I'm saying, what's jammed? And I can just hear his little voice in the dark,
6: my head. Because my head was stuck, I thought my head will pull, pull out, so <laughs> just I said, please stop, <laughs> like that.
4: So he's trapped by one of those Apple Cube computers, so we got the jaws back in and then squashed that up and made the void wide enough for his head to pop out. He went out like a rabbit. He was, he was gone for dust. Of his own
0: accord? <laughs> yeah, of his
4: own accord. So he just called
0: himself out? Just
4: crawled out and went, oh, well,
0: he's gone. He must be all right. Like we said, Yukio was pretty much uninjured. He was taken to hospital and quickly discharged. After he got out, he rang his mother back in Japan. She'd been watching the news and had gone to the language school in Toyama with other families to try and find out more about what was happening. Hearing her son's voice was a huge relief even though Yukio glossed over his whole ordeal.
6: When I talk to my mum, I'm always like this. Hey, I was okay. Thanks. (laughs) Bye.
0: Like this. Only a 19-year-old guy could be trapped in a collapsed building for eight hours, then get out and call his mum on the other side of the world and say nothing but, I'm okay. Thanks. Bye. But Yukio had his reasons.
6: Because of the phone bill, the payment. (laughs) I was in New Zealand, you know... (laughs)
0: That just left Kento, the de facto leader of the Toyama survivors. The one who'd kept everyone's spirits up, then got so disheartened, he started recording his last will and testament into his phone. Once Yukio was gone, Paul got a good look at the last man left.
4: When I got up close to him, I could see, he doesn't look too bad, but his leg disappears into a 10 mil gap.
0: You heard that correctly. Kento Okuda's right leg was now one centimetre thick. Remember, Kento was the last one left, the furthest into the tunnel, and he was on the brink. That concrete beam that Paul Rodwell talked about earlier, the one that fell and killed some Toyama students but saved others, Kento was right at the convergence. His leg was under the beam. He wasn't going anywhere. By now, it was nearly midnight. Paul Rodwell needed a break. When he returned to the west side of the rubble hours later... Kento would still be there.
1: After Narika, Stuart Martindale had been rotated off west side stretcher duty. While taking a break, he noticed something about the rescue that made him uneasy.
5: There would have been about 20 of us standing around, having a feed on muesli bars and, and bottled water. And that's when I saw that there was a Potential lack of police staff on the western side. Oh, sorry, eastern side, sorry, on Madras Street.
1: Remember, the CTV site was divided into two sectors and Yukio and the others were trapped on the west side. The east side is where a lot of heavy rubble lay and rescues were more difficult. It's where Paul Berry kept vigil for his sister Marion Hilbers and where Tanya Emery was reunited with her son Torpi.
5: Really different, really different to the west. A different feeling to it. Dare I say it, it didn't feel as hectic
1: as the west side. The difference was, as we said, because the rubble was almost impenetrable.
5: On that side, there was diggers trying to figure out how to undo the jigsaw puzzle without collapsing it more. You know, and there was discussions about, right, if we lift that beam, there's potential, it's gonna cause that, disrupt that, and that's gonna collapse, okay. But also, as they were going every now and then, they would turn all the machines off, and might do voice appeals and go up and use a brick or a hammer or something and bang on the, the concrete to try and see if they could get any response.
1: Martindale stepped back from the site, tried to take a broader look at what was going on, how to solve these problems. It was then that someone tapped him on the shoulder.
5: And to this day I don't know who it was, and said, oh, you're a boss, I've got this number of someone trapped inside. And I took it, and I turned her in, and they were gone.
1: Someone was alive, in the rubble, on the east side, with a phone. The reason the mystery man knew this was because this trapped person, a woman, had been calling her husband.
0: The husband's name was Alec Svetinov, and he was about to become the defining figure of the CTV rescue. He was from Serbia. His trapped wife, Tamara, was a pediatrician. They had two children. Tamara was the one calling her husband and telling the outside world that nearly 12 hours after the earthquake, she was trapped in the rubble, alive, with five other people.
4: I managed to call and speak with her again. I was excited and yelled, where are you? She said, in my classroom.
1: Next time on Collapse. I can remember walking around and thought, this is a movie. Are we in a movie here? It's just that bad. I just said, I'm very sorry we have to do this, mate.
5: I thought, oh, we're going to find her, you know. I honestly thought we were going to find her.
1: Collapse is a stuff podcast written, produced and presented by Michael Wright and me, Margaret Gordon. Additional reporting, research and creative input by Mark Greenhill. Script Editing by Adam Dudding Music by Henry Nichol Sound Mix and Design by Chris Sinclair If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz slash collapse where you'll find links to every episode as well as photos, graphics and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and so on. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Collapse a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Today's episode included audio from MediaWorks, Fire and Emergency New Zealand, New Zealand Police, Star Media and the Department of Internal Affairs. Thanks also to the age and nine. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air.